Hey, everybody. How you doing? Well, that's great. This is Charlie O'Connor here for another edition of Other Stuff, the music and movie show that we do every week now that hockey isn't happening. So this week, as usual, we do our, our rotation with Kelly and Bill, and this week I'm bringing Bill Matz, our director of fun and games, back onto the show. Bill, thanks for joining. Charlie, I almost broke into the intro. Like, I started to do it, and then I was like, oh, no, wait, no. Uh, you, I just got to say... You really know how to pick them, uh, whether it's a movie or an album. This shit is great. I don't know how niche it is. Like, I don't know how much everyone else is enjoying it, but these <laughs> shows have been fun preparing for. Yeah, I mean, you know what? Like, we're all streaming. You're all streaming movies, and we're all listening to music. Not all of us, but a lot of us right now anyway. So might as well, like, check out some new stuff and laugh about it with your friends. And that's really the point of this. And hopefully people listening are finding new stuff to, you know, to get into or are hearing about stuff they already like, and they're getting to hear us, you know, spend an hour chatting about it. Because, like, that's, like, I think kind of the idea of the show more or less is just, like, a bar conversation, and yeah. that's really what I, I, what I like about it. But, uh, but yeah, so this week, um, this week the, uh, the distribution was I picked the movie and Bill picked the album. As usual, we will start with the movie. And the movie was the 2007, uh, action flick shoot 'em up starring clive owen uh monica bellucci's in it paul giamatti is the villain um and that's really the only three characters i feel like in the movie worth talking about uh there's a baby so we'll, we'll, <laughs> but I, I can't imagine the baby is some famous actor or actress uh, and then there's just a bunch of random people that basically exist to get killed to get killed yeah <laughs> so ble a brief plot description in case you have not seen shoot 'em up uh, and if you haven't let I me mean, go watch it uh the belief the, the brief plot description is clive owen at the start of the movie is sitting on a bench in a seedy part of some unknown city and an evil looking guy with a gun is chasing after an extremely pregnant woman so clive owen as the hero of the story tends to do he decides to protect slash save this woman and then he ends up spending the rest of the movie protecting the baby that she gave birth to and the end result is just a lot of deaths and like a half-baked political conspiracy plot that no one really cares about but that's the movie and it is exactly what the title says shoot him up there's a lot of deaths just constant constant deaths and, and, like, let's be honest, the plot of this movie really is just a vehicle to get more ridiculous gunfights and Clive Owen quips and Paul Giamatti quips. That's really all it's there for. Like, just so there's some type of forward motion in the movie. But it's mostly about the violence, and they give you a lot of it. They really do. Uh, is there, like, a better, completely unbelievable, but somehow still completely believable, like, crime boss than Paul Giamatti? He walks that line of this guy is like the biggest nerd, but also somehow this hardcore gangster at the same time. Like whenever I see him in something like this, I'm like, yeah, I buy it. I but buy also it. like who could this guy beat in a fight? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. He's like very clearly not like a tough guy. And they kind of riff on that in the movie. But yeah. Uh, but yeah, like he's he definitely plays he plays an asshole extremely well. And he is, like, a gigantic asshole in this movie. And he does a great job because you fucking hate him. That's He's playing, like, kind of close to the same character he plays in Billions, if you've ever seen that on Showtime. I, ha I haven't. Is that good? Uh, yeah. But he's, like, a DA in that, <laughs> in that show. So, like, it's a completely different character. But he's still kind of playing it the same. Okay. Okay, fair. I mean, he's... I, I haven't seen a ton of Paul Giamatti movies. I liked him a lot in, um... Uh, the boxing movie Cinderella Man, when he's the yeah, um, yeah. when he's the manager uh, of Russell Crowe, but I can't think of like a ton of movies I've seen him in. But like I I like him as an actor. I can't say I dislike him. I just can't pinpoint a lot of movies he's been in. But I he's hilarious in this. Like every, the main characters in this movie are all are all really hilarious, and he does a, such a great job in this movie of just being this thoroughly unlikable asshole of a villain. And he's he plays the perfect opposite. Clive Owen, who's just this, like, you love him, but he's also a dick, but yeah. you like him. <laughs> and, and he's just this mopey guy who keeps doing the right thing over and over. <laughs> so so my case for this movie is essentially that it's absolutely batshit insane and ridiculous, 
but it knows it like that, that and that's kind of, it that's yeah. that's what's perfect about it yeah these kind of movies they only work we talked about it kind of with the highlander we talked about it with the cheech and Chong movie like these kind of movies only really work if it's self-aware and this movie is extremely self-aware uh the the thing that uh that i i picked up on i think like the second time i saw it way back you know 10 10 12 years ago um, is that it's essentially a live-action Bugs Bunny cartoon. Like, <laughs> Clive Owen, the entire movie, is eating carrots, which obviously is Bugs Bunny's thing. Like, there's an entire sequence where, where Paul Giamatti calls him a wascally wabbit. Like, they do, like, a what's up, Doc, back and forth. It basically is a live-action Bugs Bunny movie, except instead of it being an animated cartoon where, you know, when someone dies, they just kind of disappear. In this, like, there's blood and guts and gore and everything, and it's just kind of like Clive Owen is essentially the wisecracking Bugs Bunny of the movie, and I guess Paul Giamatti is whatever villain in a Bugs Bunny cartoon you know, you want to have, whether it's Elmer Fudd or Elmer Daffy, Fudd. Daffy Duck or whatever. I guess that's the character he plays. But I think even the even the director, like, after uh, after the movie was made, essentially said, yeah, that's, you know, it's kind of what we were going for. We were going for, like, this live-action Bugs Bunny thing. It was, uh, yeah, it, the whole, you could have just stopped that. It's absolutely batshit insane. And that's <laughs> what I freaking loved about it. Like, you have, you, in a minute, we're going to talk about our favorite scenes and like my favorite scene is the entire first thirty-five minutes. Like it's it's just one ridiculous thing after the next. It keeps getting more over the top. Like you talked about, all of a sudden this political conspiracy comes out of nowhere. Like I'll tell you, the one thing if I'm gonna point out one actual flaw in this movie, too much plot. I didn't need I didn't need to know about Clive Owen's character at. Oh, I didn't need to find out that he had like a wife and a kid and that he was trained by black ops. I didn't need to know any of that. Um, have you ever seen the show Banshee? I have. I love Banshee. Oh, yeah. This this reminded me of a combination of Banshee and those uh, those crank movies. It okay. was like those two things thrown together. But the thing I love, like in Banshee, you never find out the guy's name. The that's series true. ends, you still don't know his real name. Yeah, you're right. I, that's like, it kind of thought made me think of this. Like, you find out his backstory because it's, you know, a four-season series. In an hour and 27-minute movie, which is the perfect length, you once again pick the movie that I wouldn't lose interest in because uh, <laughs> it was only an hour and a half. Uh, like, I didn't need to know anything about him at all other than he hates everybody and is really good with a gun. That is totally fair. And I, I, I can kind of buy that in that... Like, that did sort of feel, it felt piped in. It felt like, well, we have to justify, we have to justify the existence of this movie to those damn critics who will be like, you have to tell us something about these people. There has to be character development and plot, where it's very clear the director and screenwriter and whatever, they just wanted to shove in as much crazy scenes as possible. That, that's what they really wanted to do in this movie. That was that's like a concession. A- like last night after I finished re after I finished watching it, I just googled it to read a couple of reviews, and it's like these critics, I don't know, like taking the movie seriously and shit. <laughs> and I'm like, what is wrong? Like, what is going on in your head when you were watching this thing that you were gonna break it down like it's some sort of like master? No, they were they were clearly going for like Casablanca here. Like <laughs> fucking Shakespeare wrote this thing. I I was just baffled by the things I was reading about it. I'm like, the guy was playing chicken with a van, shot out his own windshield, shot out the van's windshield, crashed head on into the van, (laughs) flew through the open spaces like a superhero, and then killed everyone in the van. What did you think you were watching when you were watching this movie? <laughs> Unbelievable. So so the backstory behind how I found this movie was I think this was this was freshman year of college. So I guess it would guess it would have been the year it came out. It would have been that 2007. Um it was well no, it was probably 2008 because it was the very beginning of 2008 because it was the end of winter break and everyone's like trickling back into uh you know to to the dorms and whatever and uh, my buddy Stephen, who uh, who had went back to British Columbia for um, you know for for Christmas break, whatever, he walks into my dorm. He's like, "Charlie, you got to see this movie. What what, what movies? It's called Shoot 'Em Up. You, you hear of it?" I'm like, "Yeah, I think I think I remember it being advertised. I didn't really have much of an interest in seeing it." He's like, "Yeah, 
I watched it on the flight home. We got to fucking watch this movie right now. <laughs> <laughs> so we call in my buddy Phil, who lived across the uh, across the hall, and we all just sat down for 90 minutes and watched this movie in my dorm room and just fucking died. Like we were dying of of how amazing it was. So that was that was my like I have to give all the credit in the world to my friend Steven for for recommending this. But it was it was very much like a he got off the plane and his life was changed because he watched this movie on the plane and he just that had to tell like, everyone about it. Like I watched it at like one this morning. I turned it on and uh, like Ava's asleep upstairs and I'm just dying laughing and there's all this machine gun fire. I'm like trying to keep it down and it was just so god. Like I was losing it for most of this movie. Oh my god, yeah, it's it's a classic. If if you're into these kind of movies, these just like ridiculous, turn your brain off, violent kind of movies, this is an absolute classic. And kind of transition, use that as a transition favorite scenes and you put to, to spoil you put in the outline in bold god there are so many <laughs> yeah there's like favorite scene like i said the whole first 35 minutes uh i mean right away like i have in my phone just my notes i was making and the first one of the first ones is well you know you really know how to pick movies that hook me from the start like uh this and the highlander uh both of them they don't make you wait for the good no. shit. No, they Something don't. good happens right away. But it, right away, like first five minutes of the movie, uh, the, the pregnant woman gives birth to the kid and they sever the umbilical cord by <laughs> shooting it. I forgot about that. <laughs> I was just like, I had to rewind it. I was like, I'm sorry. What did I just see? I was, I was losing it right there. Uh, I told the jumping through the, the car windshields was awesome. Um, the skydiving scene, though, where he has just killed the Democratic nominee for president. Yes, that happened. And then jumps out of a plane I with a parachute. They don't really get into that, but he found one. Uh, <laughs> and then all these agents and shit jump after him. And now they are falling through the sky, shooting at each other. <laughs> it might be the greatest action scene in like i don't know the history of cinema it's so good and it ends with like the one guy who's like he's like the democratic nominee for president's like main security guy or whatever he he's like the last guy like the boss of the uh, uh if you're talking about this in video game terms he's like the boss of the skydiving scene and he gets killed by falling into a spinning helicopter blade which then ends with like his arm getting completely severed and flying into your screen. Like that that's the kind of shit that they throw out there. But yeah, I, I forgot about the umbilical cord scene. My God. That it's that's so good. That's unreal. Um I, I love what you said about how like it kind of just hooks you in immediately with the ridiculousness because the very first kill he makes, he's he, the, the one of the things he's doing throughout the movie, again, the Bugs Bunny thing, is that he's eating carrots throughout the whole movie. And he has a carrot at the beginning of the movie and he confronts this guy and he literally shoves a carrot through the guy's head and then says, eat your vegetables. And that was like, <laughs> that, 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 that's the moment where you're like, oh, okay, it's one of these movies. Um, other, other scenes that, that's, that stand up. There is an entire sequence where he's having sex with Monica Bellucci and then these guys invade the room and he kills them all while continuing to have sex with Monica Bellucci. No, that was that was an all that was another all-time classic. He is inside of her the entire time and just spinning around and she seems to be having a great time. Uh He's just, like, kills, I don't know, like, 50 people? Like, 30? It was like, I paused it because all of a sudden, like, Paul Giamatti has assembled this entire kill squad because it's quite obvious, like, six or seven guys aren't going to get the thing done. He's got, like, 50 dudes invading this dude's squad house. And it's, I paused it, and it was, like, 31-31. And I'm like, they're suiting up for a final showdown. And there's still an hour left in this movie. <laughs> and then the scene is him having sex and shooting every single one of these guys. My God. Yeah, that was that, that's one of those, like, holy shit, they actually did this. That's got to be one of those scenes where, you know, all the screenwriters are in a room and just like, how fucking ridiculous can we make this movie? And someone came up with that. It's like, no, that's too far. It's like, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> uh, then there's the, uh, like, the... The final scene, not the final scene, but like the final showdown, I guess, when he shoots Paul Giamatti because 
all of his fingers are broken because they tortured him, so he can't actually hold a gun right anymore. So he somehow, and the more I think about it, it doesn't make any sense at all, because if he's if he can't hold a gun, how can he put the bullets between his fingers? But he somehow puts bullets between his fingers, and he's in front of a fireplace, and rather than shoot him with a gun, he just burns his own hand so that the flames propel the bullets into Paul Giamatti. And it's just one of those, like, again, where the fuck do they think of this shit? And it's like, at that point in the movie, I'm not quite like, what well, I'm going to question now. Exactly. Like, this is the exactly. most ridiculous thing I've seen. <laughs> exactly. Uh, it's, there's a great part in, uh, like, after the initial, like, he saves this baby and he's carrying it through the city, takes it to a park. And it's just like, I'm going to leave it here. Someone will take care of this baby now. I saved it from the violence. I'm done with this. And he leaves it on, like, this little carousel. And they come to, like, assassinate the baby. And so he spins the carousel by shooting it so that it'll keep going around and the sniper can't shoot the fucking baby. <laughs> yeah. It was so good. I would have loved to have been a fly in the wall in this, you know, screenwriting brainstorming session. Because, like, imagine the ideas that they left on the cutting room floor. If these are the ideas that they're like, yeah, this is like may- maybe the ideas on the cutting room floor were just the ones that were too conventional. It's like, nah, this is, that's too normal. That's too normal. We need something completely insane. It's not like they cut out in even more insane things. These were the most insane ideas they could come up with. I would just love to hear, like, Clive Owen's agent pitching him this movie. Like, <laughs> he hands him the script, and he goes, I think this is your next one. Like, I just always picture, like, the scenes in Entourage where he's like, this is, this is, your, this is your franchise film right here. <laughs> This is going to open you up to an entirely new audience. The funny thing about it that I I will never understand, I guess it's just a movie that that struggled to find its audience when it came out because it actually ended up getting pretty good reviews, but it just didn't make that much money. And to me, like this to me is a movie that should have been the opposite. This movie should have made a shitload of money and the critics should have absolutely savaged it because it's so not a critics movie. But I think there were some critics, like you said, that were, you know, trying to take it seriously, which is asinine. And there were some critics who were like, no, this is just a completely bonkers action movie and it's great for what it is. But I guess they just didn't advertise it well enough because to me, like this is your classic like high school boy movie. That, you know, you all your friends go and sneak in the rated R movie to see Clive and kill 100 people over the course of 90 minutes. No, that's uh, like I'm, I'm remembering like Crank in the summer of 2008 was on Showtime nine times a day. And me and my buddies were just like hanging out after the Phillies game every every night, drinking beer and being like, put on fucking Crank again. I, I don't <laughs> understand how we never came across this one. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I was lucky, as I said, I was lucky that my buddy Steven came across it because I probably never would have had he not, you know, somehow stumbled upon it on a flight back from uh, from Victoria, British Columbia to, to Philadelphia. Uh, so one thing that I love about this movie is the, the sheer number of recurring bits, because there's a lot of them. And I, feel, I think, like, if you're going to have a movie that the plot doesn't matter, the only thing that keeps you engrossed in it is the next recurring bit. Because you fall into a rhythm of, like, okay, well, this is going to happen. I want to see how they do it. And there's, like, four or five recurring bits that I absolutely love. And the first one is just the intentionally awful quips that Clive Owen comes up with at the end of every single uh, every single gunfight. Um, we already did the... Uh, the eat your vegetables, which is great. Um, after the sex scene and he kills them all, talk about shooting your load, which is like, of course, absolutely awful, but amazing. There's another scene where, so they have these guns that can only be fired by the guy that they're programmed for with like a fingerprint. And basically he gets a hold of one of these guns and Paul Giamatti uh, is, says like, well, you're, that's not going to work. You know, that that's one of those guns. And he's like, oh, yeah. And then he pulls a dead guy's hand out of his pocket and puts the puts the thumbprint of the dead guy's hand on the gun, shoots Paul Giamatti and goes, nothing like a good hand job. Yeah, that was, <laughs> I, I mean, the line was perfect. And the way they set it up earlier with him being like, oh, all of our guns have the thumbprint sensor on them. So you're not going to be able to just take him and shoot me. And I'm like, at some point, He's gonna take somebody else's hand and shoot the gun. Like, that's very obvious. And then he does, and then the hand job line, uh, his, uh, his, the jokes too. The, um, uh, what's the difference 
between a porcupine and a really nice car, the pricks on the inside of a really nice car. <laughs> and there was uh, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll get into that, but there's definitely a. Uh, he definitely does not like rich people. Not a fan of rich people in this movie, Clive Owen. I'll tell and you that. Uh, Paul Giamatti. Another recurring bit is Paul Giamatti's wife keeps calling him, and at the very end, like when he gets killed, he picks up the phone. Is like she's leaving me. But in the beginning, uh, he picks up the phone and yeah, yeah, okay, I'll be home whenever. And he hangs up because you know the difference between a wife and a gun. You can put a silencer on a gun. Like, just the worst stupid fucking jokes imaginable the whole movie. Oh, yeah. They're terrible. Like, the jokes are awful, but that's why they're great. Yeah, yeah. they're so bad. And, like, and like Paul Giamatti's, like, saying, like, the most, like, like misogynistic shit. But, like, he's the villain, so you, you, it gets by because, like, oh, yeah, you're supposed to hate him because he's just this terrible human being. Whereas Clive Owen, despite the fact that he's killing everyone, it like, they definitely do position him as, like, yeah, he has a moral code. He's a total dick. But he has a moral code, unlike Paul Giamatti, who's just, like, flat-out evil. Yeah, and then there's a, another scene where he's on a rooftop, and there's, like, a bunch of letters for a sign in fluorescent lights, and he shoots out enough of the letters so it says, fuck you, and then he, he it, the, cam- the camera turns back to him, it's, fuck you, you fucking fuckers. Like, yeah, you couldn't get enough <laughs> F-bombs in that line. <laughs> it's, like... It continues to be ridiculous the entire way, which I really appreciate. And just, yeah, the recurring gags really uh, really make it fun. I will say, though, man, he might, like, Clive Owen in this movie, Smith, is the only name that you ever get out, out of him. Um, he might not be the hero, the hero the left deserves, but he's the hero we need. Like... <laughs> He is actually for gun control. <laughs> he's he's pro all this stuff. He says at one point, uh, never trust never trust the people who stand to make the profit. They're always the bad guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's secretly like the uh, the weapon of the underclass. He hates rich people. He's constantly ripping on rich people in this movie. Uh, yeah, I I didn't I didn't think of that, but yeah, he's the. Uh, yeah, he's the, the the superhero that the left actually needs. Um, another thing that actually like this is this is a part you know, and I'm certainly not going to praise this movie for its technical ability, but I did love the music choices they play during the gunfights. Like they're it's really good. Soundtrack is one of my first notes. Like start it right. It's all the gunfights. It's just good hard rock that you know. Um, I'm not going to say Ace of Spades is the greatest song of all time, but Ace of Spades is the greatest song of all time. <laughs> so, like I, that right there, that's points in my book. That was great. You got Breed by Nirvana, which actually works really well to, to, to choreograph a gunfight. Who the fuck knew? Uh, Joker and the Thief, which is like one of those, it's one of the rare, like, I think like classic new school hard rock songs. There aren't a lot of them, but that's one that was kind of an instant classic. It was in the hangover, which is great. Um, you get an ACDC song. Uh, if you want blood, which is during the, uh, during the, uh, the skydiving scene, you get an icky, an Iggy pop song. The movie ends with kickstart my heart by Motley Crue. Like they're just, they're playing the hits in this movie and it works perfectly. I feel like I've seen about 10 movies that the that kickstart my heart plays over the credits. It's a good song to play over. Oh, the it's credits. a great song. <laughs> That's my shit. I love that kind of stuff. So, uh, so another bit that I love, and this one I'm just going to go through rapid fire because it's really the only way you can go through it. So Clive Owen hates a lot of things in this movie, and he will say flat out that he, you know, what I hate, and then he says it, and he says it about nine or ten times. So what does he hate? I'm going to go through it. Clive Owen hates rich people. He hates rich people who park in handicapped spots. He hates rich people who don't use their turn signals. He hates liars. He hates, and I quote, 40-year-old jackholes wearing ponytails. He hates lame action movies where the good guy only calls one person who ends up betraying him. He hates parents who hit their children. And then he hates, and this is a quote because this is a line that Paul Giamatti throws out there in the beginning of the movie as like, he's not this. And then Clive Owen hits him with, yes, you are, which is, quote, a pussy with a gun in his hand. So those are all the things that Clive Owen hates. Now, what doesn't he hate? He likes dogs. He likes carrots. And randomly, he likes the move, the, the book Oliver Twist, which <laughs> when he says that, I just start absolutely dying because it's so out of place. And that's what makes it amazing. 
one of the best bits in the movie is the baby loves death metal. Yes, yes. <laughs> and so they piece together somehow. Oh, he must have lived above a metal club and he could hear the music in the womb so he can find out where the mother used to live by uh, looking for a metal club. That That's the point of the movie where um, they go to the metal club and then uh, Monica Belushi uh, figures out that the club owner has like a dick ring and then yanks it out of him. Yeah, and that's, get- how they, that's how they get answers out of him. That's how that they was, get answers when, out of uh, him. When they have the uh, when they have the German Shepherd searching for them, and she just goes, "Please don't kill the dog." I was like, "If he shoots this dog, I'm gonna start rooting for the bad guy." <laughs> no, I I, th- I think it's actually the opposite. I think she's like, "Why?" Like because the dog is very clearly like a dog who's trained to you know to do damage, and she says something like, "Why aren't you gonna shoot the dog?" Oh yeah, she says like, "Kill the dog because it's coming for us." Yeah. yeah, and then he's like, "I'm not gonna kill the dog," and she goes, "Why?" I like dogs. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Like, that is one thing I will say about this movie, that they do a good job, and I forget which movie it was. I think I think it was uh, Snatch with Kelly earlier on when we were doing this, and I said one of the, uh, one of the issues I had, and I like that movie a lot, but one of the issues I had with it was they have um, the, the, the main characters who you're supposed to like do some things and say some things that, like, kind of go against that. There's certain, like things you have to do in these sort of movies where there's lines that the good guys can't cross. There's yeah. things that the good guys shouldn't say because then you start wondering, okay, are they actually people I should be rooting for? And one thing this movie does really well is, while Clive Owen is absolutely like not a pleasant human being, he says and does the things that make you realize, like, okay, well, in the context of this movie, I should be rooting for him, and I don't feel conflicted rooting for him, aside from the fact that, you know, he's killing hundreds of people. Yeah, and they all deserve it. Um, exactly, exactly. I, I uh, what the hell was I just about to say? The, uh, all right, go on, I'll remember it. God damn it, my brain. We'll get back to it, I'm sure. In terms of, like, a guy doing bad stuff that you still root for because there's a line... When he chases down the rich dude uh, who doesn't use his turn signal. Yes. If I had millions of dollars, this is how I would spend my time. Dispensing vigilante justice on the highways. <laughs> and then just throwing like 10 grand at someone and being like, shut the fuck up. Like, yes. Just running them off the road, explaining to them why I did it because they're bad drivers. And then just throwing money at them. That's how I would spend my time. And I would see myself as a hero. I mean, Clive Owen was certainly a hero in this movie. Yeah, exactly. As you, as, as you said, he's the hero. Not the hero the left deserves, but the one they need. Oh, my God. Yeah, I, I am really, really glad you liked this movie. I, I, I was pretty convinced you were you were going to like it, but I'm thrilled that you were. That you That's did. like when you just Google it and it shows you like the quick two-sentence like IMDB review. I was like, what? What? Uh, a drifter and a prostitute find a baby and then they take on the what i don't okay all right charlie let's see what you're up to and uh sure enough sure enough it was a winner i'm sold all right uh any uh, any final thoughts before we turn to the uh the album and get a little bit more serious honestly i'm just looking forward to your next movie choice that's uh i I don't like really, like, there are some great movies I love. And, you know, I love Pulp Fiction. I love Jaws. There are some great movies I love. But honestly, I prefer bad movies. So this is perfect. If it doesn't have lightsabers or time travel or uh, proton packs, I probably don't like it. But this, this was perfect. Nice, nice. All right, uh, so that'll do it for our discussion of Shoot 'Em Up. Highly recommend it if you don't mind watching ultra-violent movies that you can just turn your brain off and watch for 90 minutes. Highly recommend it. Uh, now we will take a quick break, and then we will return with our album of the week, uh, which is uh, Searching for a Former Clarity by Against Me. All right, we're back. So this week, I picked the movie, which was Shoot 'Em Up, and Bill picked the album. And Bill, the album that he picked, uh, which I was actually really pumped to uh, to hear he picked it because uh, this is a band that, for whatever reason, I just kind of missed on. Um, and, and I think I think what it was was that there was a person um, that I really like, whose whose musical taste I really trusted on the message board I frequented when I was uh, when I was in high school, the the Jimmy World message board, and he really liked against me's early stuff 
So I listened to some of their early stuff, and there was a few songs I liked, but I wasn't super into the style. And then he really didn't like this album. So I was like, okay, well, it probably sucks. Whereas in reality, this was probably the first album of theirs I would have actually legitimately liked all the way through because it's way more my style than the early stuff, which is super, super raw. And the album is Searching for a Former Clarity by the band Against Me. Yeah, and it's I, I get it because I was one of those. This one, not so much. I really did enjoy this album. But people who were on the band, like I got into them around the time this came out and just kind of heard their first three albums all at the same time. And there's stylistic differences and just y- you hear them growing up. But it's it's this is a very conflicted album. And the fan base, because it was like people who love them from uh, Reinventing Axl Rose, their first studio album, uh, they really felt personally attached to this band. And they just... They were kind of just these underground, like, punk rock stars that it felt like it was yours, and they were never going to leave you. And then suddenly, a little bit of the edge comes off. It doesn't suddenly sound like it was recorded in a dumpster, you know? I mean, this is still on Fat Wreck. Like, they recorded it with Fat Mike, you know? It's not like they did it with uh, Butch Vig, which they'll do after this, but you definitely start to hear it coming, coming a little bit softer, just... Not poppy, but poppier than, you know, Baby I'm an Anarchist and shit like that. Uh, It's, it's, you hear the conflict in them, in their, uh, in their album. But listening back to it now, really what stands out to me is there are some songs in this album that I love that I hear so much differently because I know about Laura Jane Grace now. Like, I didn't realize at the time, I thought it was all about, like, should we sign with a label? What's the audience going to think? What's the band going to do? Are we going to break up? Like, all this shit. And it's that. And it's also, like, yeah, I I think I'm transgender and I'm going to lose everything I have, my wife, my band, everything, if I come out. Like, there's so much in this. It's 14 tracks and we'll get into it, but, like, there's one I don't like and 13 I really like. Yeah, yeah, it is. And, and as someone who never really listened to this album before, you know, be, be, before she, I guess, came out and, and it was public, because this was something that I'm, I'm sure she was going through for years and years and years prior to everyone in, in the world knowing. But, uh, but yeah, there's a lot in this album that, that very clearly references her struggle. And uh, and it does add an entirely new layer, I'm sure, especially because I, I read some interviews and, you know, she explains that, like, she thought that she was making it very, very obvious in her lyrics what she was going through yeah. and just kind of couldn't grasp why no one was getting it. And you read them now and you're like, shit, yeah, how did no one get it? No, and that's like even the next one, New Wave, which is their first one on uh, on a major label. She's like, I, I saw her do a uh, a live show where it was just like her and the drummer, and she's reading like excerpts from her travel diaries that later became her uh, her book. And it's just like she's talking about recording some songs, and she's talking about certain lyrics in this album, and then a New Wave where she's like embarrassed by it and afraid about what her bandmates are going to say. So she's like, oh, I was just super high when I wrote the line, like, you know, confessing childhood secrets of dressing up in women's clothes. And then in the next album, like, my mother once told me she would have named me Laura and things like that. And it's like, oh, wow. Yeah, she was telling us. And you hear music through your own lens, you know, as much as the artist puts themselves in it. You interpret it how you want to interpret it. Like the song Pretty Girls that I love. I'm like, oh, yeah, this is relatable. And now I listen. I'm like, oh, that's not what she was saying at all. Okay. I see yeah. this much differently now. Yeah, it's it's wild. I'm sure it's I'm sure it's wild for uh, you know for fans, longtime fans of the band, because of that, you know, you had that different interpretation of songs you you just didn't you didn't get it. And it's just kind of this this eureka moment, like, oh, it all makes sense now. Um, but I guess I think we, we sort of did this already, but if you could just do some backstory for people who aren't as familiar with with Against Me, you know, with Laura Jane Grace and kind of just the progression of, of them as a band and where this album fits into their story. Yeah, so this is their this is their third studio album. Uh, they're a punk band from Gainesville, Florida, the uh, the punk capital of the world down there in Gainesville. 
Uh, and basically, it's just it started as like an acoustic band playing coffee shops and just grew into something else, really. And this album is it got the most recognizable of the Against Me lineups uh, with with Laura at the time was known as Tom Gable. Um, I know that's like you're not supposed to. But that's how she was born. That was her name uh, at the time. And then uh, Warren Oaks on drums, Andrew Seward in the band, uh, her great friend uh, James Bowman. The, the, that's the, like the most recognizable, the four-piece lineup. And they, they put out this album first called Against Me Is Reinventing Axl Rose. And it is just like an ode to punk rock. It's just this... If you're a teenager and you're in that scene and you're moshing and screaming lyrics about anarchy, it's like you just feel every song on the album. I see you love Pints Again, It Makes You Strong. Yeah, I love, and I love that song. I believe that's the opening song on their first album. And I probably woke up to that song every day, like junior year of high school. Like, <laughs> that was on my on my CD player with my alarm set. So, uh, And it just kicks off the album like... Baby I'm an Anarchist is one of my favorite songs of all time and like there's nothing like that on this one but you just really see the progression like they do the Eternal Cowboy that's their second album and it's like every album is half of the one that came before it and then okay. half of what's going to come after it and that one it still has like those good like uh you know sing-alongs the wo-wo-wo's that we talked about stuff like that and then you just you start to hear them progress as songmakers, and this one comes out, and it's the one that gets them signed. And you're okay. you're not really sure what direction they're going in, but you can feel the conflict. They they are obviously like songs like "Unprotected Sex" with multiple partners, where they're just like, I you don't understand the business of this. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. would be really really cool if we could be the underground heroes forever, but um, you need money to buy food, so. It's just kind of the way this business is that we had to keep progressing, and that's it's they're telling the story of their band through their music in this one. It feels like, yeah, yeah, it it really does have a cool uh, like a cool narrative vibe, and obviously, you know, it, there's another level to it when you find out, you know, what Laura was going through. One thing that that really is interesting to me though about kind of what's changed in music over because this comes out in 2005. Maybe it's still big in the punk scene. I just, I'm not really in a punk scene anymore. But I feel like back then, back in this era, the idea of signing to a major label and the idea of selling out was really, really a big deal. And it, it, yeah, it and, was. And, 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 and it seems much like less a big deal now. Maybe it's just because fewer bands of this style even have the opportunity to get signed to major labels. But even the ones that do, I don't ever get the feeling that like there's this mass exodus. Whereas back then, I mean, I remember when, and not even just punk bands, like indie rock bands too, when they would sign to major labels, like they would lose a third of their fan base just on principle. Oh, 100%. Like I, when they signed, like I had friends who were like, yo, fuck them. I was like, dude, I like they've made some of my favorite music ever recorded, and someone's gonna make that money. Why not them? Like, shit, I'd rather it be them than like uh, any other band. Honestly, like they deserve it. They make awesome freaking music. And then New Wave came out, and it seemed like such a departure. Like now, I like it. I think it's a good album. It's not one of my favorite ones of their albums, but they're my favorite band of all time. All their albums are my favorites. Like, it's pretty good. But at the time, when they're touring on it, I didn't go to the show. I was like, nah, it sucks. I ain't going. I don't want to hear that shit. They're going to play Baby, I'm an Anarchist. I'm going to throw up a middle finger at him. go, oh, yeah, you're on Mandy Moore's record label. Like, <laughs> like, and it just, it was a big deal at the time. And no, I, and I guess things like, you don't need to be on a major label now. Yeah, like, that's true. Spotify is the great, like, do they make as much money as they would if they were signed to whatever? Probably not, but, it, like, you can find, it's just as easy to find music on Spotify if you're on Fat Records as it is if you're on Atlantic. Yeah, it's just, it's interesting to me because, like, that whole concept, and again, maybe this is partially because I've gotten older, but I do think there's been an, a, a change with the way the music, just even the music industry and music scenes function, where, like, selling out just isn't the, the, the awful phrase that it used to be. Like, it's very much, you know, I feel like there's, there's maybe more of an understanding in music communities that 
we do want, you know, our favorite artists and our favorite bands to not go completely bankrupt just because of some idea of musical purity that we've created in our heads. And I think that's healthy. Unfortunately, I think there's probably less money to go around these days than there was back in even the the mid the early to mid 2000s. So that's probably part of it. But it is just interesting because this was such a major theme of this album. The idea of, uh, you know, against me, you know, losing some fans, you know, they, they changed their style a little bit. They were on the verge of signing to a major label and they're kind of conflicted on it. And it was I was I was in music scenes in this time where that was a really big freaking deal. And you, I mean, I was never I don't think I was ever one of the people who was anti-major, anti-like favorite bands of mine signing to major labels, probably partially because my favorite band was Jimmy Eat World and they were always on a major label, yeah, yeah. so it just didn't bother me. But I absolutely had friends that, you know, oh, well, they were good before they, like AFI, classic example. AFI was a band that, big in the punk scene, Black Sails, Art of Drowning, all the diehard fans love, then they signed to a major label for Sing the Sorrow, and I think Sing the Sorrow is an amazing album, but a lot of people just dismissed it on principle, because, you know, it was too glossy, it was too poppy, it was on the radio, and, you know, that was just a normal thing for a very large subsection of rock music fans to think of when a band would do that. That's, and like, uh, I think partially it's like, we're, we're more accepting of it now, one, we're all adults, and two... It's kind of our own creation. Like, we all stole so much music. Like, everybody. Like, it turns out Metallica was right. You know? (laughs) This is hurting art. There's no money in the art unless you're on a major label. So, you kind of have to get that big advance. Otherwise... There's no incentive to create art unless you really are just like, no, man, I'm in it to be a starving artist. But I think it's on, I watched this documentary against me put out around this time called We're Never Going Home, where they're being courted by all these labels, and they're kind of just fucking with them, like going (laughs) out and taking all their free drinks and then going, all right, see ya. But, like, they get into these, like, debates with fans who are like, don't do it, man. They're like, how do you feel about, like, Green Day and The Clash? And they just name, like, all these classic punk bands that every everybody loves. And they go, every single one of them was on a major label. Like, get over it. And, yeah, we kind of just needed to. And we grew up, and they grew up, too. Yeah, yeah. It's just It, it was just one of those interesting things for me going back through this album because— it, it is made out to be such a big deal in the album, and while it seems antiquated a little bit now, it absolutely was not back then, and because I lived through it, like, I just, I just would find it interesting, I would find it interesting for someone, like, a punk rock fan who is 18 years old right now who maybe hasn't lived through these types of these types of wars in the scene. How would they respond to some of the songs on this album that are very clearly talking about scene politics of, you know, should I sign to a major label, the business side of it all, and basically being like, look, we're going to make our music the way we want to make it, and if you guys don't like what we're doing, kind of screw you. I just, I, I wonder how someone who didn't live through just how important that was, like how they would respond to these themes and kind of just think like, well, this is kind of stupid. Why is it such a big deal? You know what I mean? Yeah, and I remember, uh, I remember when Laura came out in support of uh, in support of Barack Obama, and people freaked out about that. They're like, every song on Reinventing Axl Rose was a lie, and she just goes, "Dude, I wrote half those songs when I was fucking sixteen years old." Like, <laughs> <laughs> like yes, it would be cool if things were that way, but guess what? Uh, ideals don't make the world go round. And I, yeah, I wonder like now that we are in this in this time where those things don't matter and everybody if you're not like it's this crazy like you want to be politically active but also if you are you're you're just a cog in the system. Like I want to and it extends to the scene as well. Like, I do wonder like how this would be interpreted today versus, you know, the early part of this uh, of these last 20 years. Yeah, yeah, it's it's just an interesting kind of thought experiment, I think. Um, we, we've already talked about the album a little bit, just to kind of go through some of my thoughts. As you said, you know, as I said, I knew this band, I knew their early stuff. Uh, Pints of Guinness, Make You Strong was a song I liked right off the bat, but it was more just kind of a grab bag of songs for me. Uh, this album I liked. I, I liked it a lot. Um, I wouldn't say I loved it, because I, I, I do feel like... What I love about the album is that it's really trying to be great. 
And I think that was something that 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 Laura explained a few years later, because I think at least Laura isn't like a huge fan of this album in retrospect. She was like, yeah, you know, we tried a lot of things and I'm glad we tried them, but I don't I don't love listening to this album. And one thing she said, which is interesting, is that they were heavily inspired by an album that I really like, uh, The Ugly Organ by a band called Cursive. They're an emo band. And they, the, the Ugly Organ is a concept album. That is, it's, it's an album about like scene politics and things like that. And um, it's got like a cello. It's, it's a cool album. I like it a lot. But uh, I never expected to hear that Against Me was influenced by it. And basically they went into the studio and they're like, let's write our masterpiece. And that was what they wanted to do with this album. And I don't know if it quite, sticks the landing um i just don't know if it if it holds together it's a little bloated in my mind there are some songs that didn't stick with me necessarily and i just feel like understandably she's a lot more it just seems like the songs that are about you know her her gender dysphoria that's the stuff that like really really nails it and the stuff that's about the scene politics while i like some of the songs a lot you could kind of tell that her heart isn't really in it, which goes back to a quote that she she has in a, a Rolling Stone article from 2014 because she she comes out as, as a transgender woman in 2012. So this is after that. And the quote is, at the time, the band was facing intense scrutiny from the punk scene about the politics of what label we were or weren't on. That album was me saying, I don't even care about these things. Do you really want to know how it feels on the inside right now and what I'm really thinking about? And I think that comes through in that the really the, the songs that really hit me hard are the ones about that struggle and the stuff that's more scenish well i don't think they're bad songs it's almost like and i guess that's sort of part of what they were going for in a sense but it just sort of feels superfluous so but i i like the album i just this is an album that it, i listen to it and i'm like this is a good album that's trying to be great and i don't know if it for me, it quite gets to great, but I definitely like it, if that makes sense. No, I, I fully understand. Like, um, you know, this is this is when I got into the band, so obviously I look like you have that nostalgia factor for me. Like, I think about the things that were going on in my yeah. life when I was listening to this album. So you feel that, but, like, their conflict comes through in the music, and you hear all the, like, you hear all her conflict, the band's conflict, and it does create a bit of... Like, like, it's 14 tracks. Does it need to be? No, probably not. Like, this would be a great 35-minute album, and it's 47, you know? Um, it's If I had to rank their albums, it's not in my top two or three, but it's probably right there. I, it's, it's such a... You, their desperation still comes through, even though the sound is a little different. Uh, it's... It's a mixed bag, but at the end of the day, I do really like most of the songs on it. Yeah, it's it's good, and I was, I wouldn't say I was pleasantly surprised because going in, I sort of expected. You know, I, I read a couple reviews. One thing that did jump out to me, which again, sh it should have been a reason why I should have listened to this when it came out. Like, I really like the the guy who produced this album, Jay Robbins. Um, I he's one of my favorite producers. He doesn't produce much anymore, but he was really big in the like the DC punk scene and the DC punk scene being like. Oh, it, it, it was basically like a post-punk scene. Um, you know, Fugazi is the band that gets talked about a lot in that in that genre, but you had bands like Jawbox, uh, stuff like that. And he was like one of the big producers in uh, in that scene. Um, and I always loved the way the way the albums he produced sounds. Like he produced um, one of my one of my favorite indie rock albums of all time. Um, the Emer Emergency and I by the Dismemberment Plan. Love it. And he produced that album. I think that is one of the best sounding albums in indie rock I've ever heard. He produced a couple a couple albums by um, by The Promise Ring, who were an emo band. Um, Modern Life is War, who was a punk band I really liked, like a hardcore punk band, one of the few hardcore punk bands I really liked. Um, he was just, I loved his production style. He just had this like really post-punk production style that I thought really got a lot out of the guitars. And I don't know why I didn't listen to, to this album, probably because I just didn't know that he produced it. Because if I would have known he would have produced it, I would have been interested enough 
um, to uh, to check it out. But there's some songs in this album that you really get that like that post punk vibe. Justin being the big one that you really get that like this sounds like a DC punk song, which I'm sure came off as very weird to the diehard Against Me fans because that was very much not the like you know folk punk acoustic driven style that they were doing before this. No, and that's, like, I, I, I'm really glad you pointed that song out because you're, like, the first person other than me I've ever met that likes this song. <laughs> uh, and uh, I, I, it's interesting you mentioned the uh, the producer and he's in the DC scene because, like like I said, they're on Fat Wreck here. And every story I've ever heard about making this album, like, references Fat Mike from NoFX, and that's his yeah, yeah, label. Yeah. So I always just assumed it was made out on the West Coast. Like, the the quote I love about making this album, uh, I heard Laura say once, was, uh, we made that album with Fat Mike, and the thing about making an album with Fat Mike is he he always has really good cocaine. (laughs) (laughs) And that's just like, I'm like, okay, yeah, and then you hear a song like How Low, and you're like, I can see how being a drug addict in this situation would be really difficult if you're trying not to do drugs. And you're with Fat Mike, who's like, no, actually, drugs are good. Uh, But Justin, uh, I personally love it. It's just a good song, but I always personally loved it because back in this time, uh, and it's later in my life than I'd like to admit, I was still uh, backyard wrestling. Nice. And (laughs) my, uh, my backyard wrestling name was Just Insane. And Perfect. we o- I, we always made like these highlight videos and these pre uh, like pre like pre match packages with good music to set up our matches. And there's a line in here that says, "You know, Justin. Well, Justin's dead." And I always wanted my main rival to like use that in one of our in like one of our promos, and we just never got to yes. it. But it's always just something I always felt. But yeah, it is a song. This and violence that just do not sound like them at all. But Justin works, and Violence is the only song on the album I actually do not like. Yeah, I would agree with that. Violence, like I, I have, um, I use Music B, which is basically like a almost like a Windows Media Player type thing. And one of the primary reasons I use it when I listen to music is because I can put like star ratings next to the songs. And Justin is the only song on the album that I have as a one star, like or not Justin, Violence. Justin I like. Justin is one of, actually one of my favorite songs on the album. But yeah, Violence I have as a as a one star, and it's the only one star song I have on the album. So yeah, that one just I. I I know what they were going for and I get it. It just doesn't really work. It's very minimal and it just doesn't really yeah. go anywhere. And it's five minutes long. That one doesn't click for me, but the Justin, I like, and as I said, a lot of why I liked it is because that's a very, it's a very J Robin song. It's by far the most J Robin sounding song on the album. And listening to it, I was like, I like this because this is the, the post punk DC sound, but I could totally see why like the diehard against me fans. Would be, what the fuck is this shit? And it's uh, like, They've always been a band that makes songs about politics, but Justin and a few others on this album are, like, more personal. Like, Justin is the story, you know, it's it's a story about how something affected him, like how actual policy and things like that, world events, affected this one guy. And uh, they they try it again, uh, I'd like, uh, from her lips to God's ears. Like, it is a song where they call out the Secretary of State Condoleezza yeah. Rice in the chorus and shit like that. Like, they start to personalize it and really, really wrap their arms around their political identity while they're doing, like, a million other things in this album. But it's just stuff like that that really, uh, uh, that really you see them starting to mature and it's not just like, Oh, those anarcho punks are mysterious. Like songs like that. Yeah. I, I really think, and I, I, as I said, I like this album now. I suspect that if I listened to it in 2005, I probably would have liked it even more. Um, because as I said, because of the, the, like the scene politics that I was, you know, very much involved in, like, this is the kind of stuff that, you know, you go to shows and you'd be debating with people. You know, I, I get into debates on whether AFI sold out or not. Like, this is just the shit you talked about at these shows when you're in high school and this shit seems like it matters a lot. And the fact that this album talks about that, like, I certainly wouldn't have picked up. Um, you know the gender struggle that Laura was going through. I maybe maybe I would maybe I would have wondered, but it's one of those things where you know it's just. And I think this is why it was so it was such a huge deal in the punk scene is just that it you know against me. I always kind of viewed against me as this you know 
and and this is probably because I didn't listen to you know this album or some of the other stuff and really dive into the lyrics. Like they just struck me as a very like bro type of punk band almost, and I think that might be one of the reasons why you know maybe some of the fans didn't pick up on it because it was just so the idea that Laura could be a woman just was so foreign to them because it didn't fit with their preconceived biases of what against me was if that makes sense. No, it really because it's funny to see shows now where it's like you know most of the fans are our age, so they've grown up. Yeah. But you can see like it's just normal dudes who are probably bros in college, and maybe like this helped them understand something they had no idea about, like Laura's whole struggle and all this. Yeah. Like the final song on the, I always say like nobody ends an album like Against Me. Every final song is like my favorite song that they have, uh, and this one, Searching for a Former Clarity. It's like, holy shit, how did I not see this one coming? Yeah. It, and holy shit is another song on the album, <laughs> so that's funny. But it was like, I'm like, ooh, how did this one get by me? How did I not see this? No, that that song is is absolutely stunning. And like that's a that's a song where like that's it's essentially in my mind, like I get the you know, it's raw musically, but like it's basically an indie rock song. You know, yeah. in just the way it the way it flows and whatnot, and the fo- the dramatic focus on the lyrics and and just the bloodletting in general from from her, but it's just it's it's an absolutely devastating track. Definitely one of my favorites on the album, and it's just it's hard not to, you know, it's it's really hard not to be emotionally moved by that song because it really is a devastating song. In uh, something uh, you have Miami listed as one of your favorite tracks, and it's a cool opening song. Uh, they open shows with it sometimes. It's a good song. I just like um, when you're talking about Florida and talking about ballots floating into the ocean. <laughs> does that just seem a little dated? Like it's That's a good fair. reference for me and fair. you because like we were alive, but still like we were young in 2000. You know? Yeah. And this shit comes comes out five years after that, and now it's you know 20 years after that. Yeah. Do you, like. I don't know. It's it's a cool song. I'm just listening back. I'm like, would anyone even get this reference now? No, that's totally fair. And it's interesting you bring up Miami because the first time through this album, I listened to this album probably about three or four times so far. Um, the first time through this album, I did not really like the song Miami. Like, it just didn't. I was like, this is a little over the top, whatever. And then the second time through, I liked it more. And by the third time, I really liked it. It just it's a, it's a high-octane song. I think it opens the album well. And I like – what I really liked about it is – it kind of has like a like an, almost like a ska undercurrent. There's some horns in the background that give it a cool like a cool unique vibe, uh, especially in relation to the rest of the album. It just doesn't. None of the other songs have that feel, and it's just like it's it's a cool like intense song. I like the chorus a lot. Um, but yeah, one song that you you highlighted that I didn't put on my favorite songs, but I actually I, I listened to the album again uh, today, and like that song Joy is really really good. I think uh, that and something newer of theirs called Black Me Out, Joy and Black Me Out, are the two most beautiful songs yeah. they've ever played. Yeah. It is. Like, it's it just, is. if you want to see me tear up listening to music, get me drunk and put on Joy. Like, I just, I fucking feel that song, man. Like, looking, like, feeling the good in bad. Like, things are bad. There's a joy in everything. Like, I, I just, I feel feel it i just it it hits me real hard no and, and i took some notes like on the songs i think the, I, the first or second time i went through the album and for joy i just had like it's a it's a real my first note was it's a good come down track after how low because how low is like very clearly like a real emotionally driven track and it, this yes. is and joy is more subdued and then my second note was like actually this is really a beautiful song and it is and i think what's cool about it is that it's only two minutes and 12 seconds long and you know, I'm definitely someone who tends to like epic songs. You know, I, yeah. I, I like songs that, you know, build and build and build and explode. But there's really something to be said about a band that is able to get their point across and really have an emotional impact in a short period of time. Like, Guided by Voices is the classic indie rock band that was famous for, you know, you know, sub two minute songs that did that. A punk band today that, that does that is Joyce Manor. I don't know if you've listened to them, but they're really good at writing short songs that really hit hard and they're just concise and they get their point across and then they end. And I think this song is great because it is really a, a devastatingly beautiful song, but it doesn't hang around too long. It knows exactly no, what it's, it's going to say and then just it's over. 
it's verse, chorus, verse, chorus, next track. Yeah. Like, that's – and it's – it's re- yeah, I, I love the length of it. It's uh, it's something I just really, really dig. Uh, we talked about uh, – what is it? It's Violence is the only song in the album I actually don't like. And they follow it then with Pretty Girls. And it's like – it feels to me like an admission. Like, yeah, we might have taken it down a little yeah. too far there. Time to really pick this fucker back up. And you just, like, get into a good, fun song. Even though when you listen to the lyrics, you're like, oh, wait, is this even all that fun? But it feels it when you listen to it. Yeah, yeah. Pretty Girls is definitely one of my favorite tracks on the album. That It's a great song. And, yeah, that was a song where, like, I'm glad... I'm glad I, I when I when I listened to the song first that I was reading along with the lyrics with it because I might have just been like yeah this is like a good punk song it's it's catchy it's 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 pretty fun but like it's very clear when you read the lyrics at least my interpretation is that like she wants to have a relationship with someone but she knows she's going to have to tell them who she is and she's just, yeah, and- she's just terrified of that conversation and what that's going to do to the relationship that she really wants and it's it's really a, a, an absolutely heartbreaking track which somehow works well with just how kind of unassuming the music is which is just kind of your basic punk song yeah like just a little background on Laura was has been married twice this album comes out like i think march 05 she got divorced at some point in 2004 for the first time okay. uh so like you can tell, like maybe this conversation did come up between them. Maybe she's trying to date again and has to. Uh, how do I explain who I really am to someone I I really like but met two weeks ago and I have no, you know, yeah. like it's just so much. There is so much conflict with the scene uh, individually. Like a song like How Low when you're trying to be like, yeah, we're definitely calling it in early tonight. No, well, it's six a.m. and I'm doing blow. Like, it's, <laughs> It's just so much of that in every single song. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, it's funny. This album, like, I, I, I really like having this conversation with you because the more you, the more you talk about this album, the better it, it, it feels because there really is a lot going on here, and it, it, you know, I don't know if it's an album that I'm ever going to like count as one of my favorites ever but it's an album that the more you the more you talk through what was going on the more you talk through just the complexity of it the more you just even if you don't like it you have to respect it you know what i mean because there's just there there's a lot that the band there's a lot that laura was really trying to get across here and it's it's really an ambitious album when you when you dive into it it is and like you you asked the question on the album on the outline what does the band do best what are they best at and to me it's just always been making me able to feel like even if i don't understand all the lyrics i get what you're getting at you get your emotions across as well as any band i've ever heard like that's what i would say they are best at is just even like making me feel it like you listen to reinventing axel rose i'm sorry nobody knows every word to that album <laughs> because some of it's just incomprehensible yeah yeah but you fucking know it you feel it and that's like that's what they do better than anyone I'd say. Yeah, yeah, it's just it's interesting to me with them because they definitely had like different eras. You know, you have that yeah. you have that early era where they're the, you know, folk punk raw, you know, the the production values aren't great. And then you have the, you know, the the thrash unreal era, new wave when they're very clearly trying to be popular. You know, they're trying to yeah, be on like, the radio and stuff. New wave and white crosses are Produced by Butch freaking Vig. Yeah. Like, it's... Those albums were meant to be a big deal. It just, like, musically and, hey, here's some punk. Like, we're gonna get punk back on the radio. And some of the songs were good. Uh, like, neither... There's some really great shit. Like, if you're into, uh, if, if you really wanted to get into Against Me, like, the album White Crosses is kind of where it all comes to a head. Like, Warren leaves the band basically after they make the album. But when you look at the, like, the personnel, he ain't the only drummer on that album. Right. Like, it's mostly Drum Machine, I would say. But then there's another drummer listed. Like, there's a lot of stuff going on. But th- they put out, like, the, uh, the alternate version of White Crosses, and it's called Black Crosses. And it's basically how they wanted the album to sound without Butch Fig. Huh. And it is very interesting. Okay. And it's just, you see, like, 
after two albums, they leave their record label and then kind of start over again. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. So, and then I guess the, the two most, like the two most recent ones, what are they like? Are they more like the poppy stuff or are they kind of throwbacks? Like how do they it's, sound? It's a real strong combination. Like it's like transgender dysphoria blues. Uh, I think that's 2014. I want to say like, I freaking love that album more than this one. Okay. Uh, the second one they put out, Shapeshift with me, not a huge fan. Like, that is, to me, by far their worst album. Okay, okay. Uh, but I would say the second to last one is really freaking good. Um, probably the thing most most worth listening to after this one. Okay, okay, that that's fair. Yeah, and then the early stuff, I mean, the early stuff is the early uh, stuff. The, the first two yeah. albums are just punk rock classics. Like, that shit's, I mean, it's timeless. Yeah, yeah, cool. Um, so yeah, any uh, any final thoughts here, Bill? I am just honestly, Charlie. It's hard. You're you're great at talking about music. Like I told you before, the uh, the thing you wrote for the Athletic that was about the the new DJ oh, yeah. at Wells Fargo Center. Like that's the best shit you ever wrote. <laughs> and I'm a fan of your writing, but that was just really good. You're really good about talking about music, and you're so you listen to so much. So it's I'm like. I don't know if Charlie's heard this shit before. I know he's talked to me about against me, so he's familiar with them. I would love to do reinventing Axl Rose, but he's my age and he listens to music, so he's probably heard it before. <laughs> so, like, finding this one and seeing you hadn't heard it, I was like, hell yeah, cool. I'm looking forward to see what he thinks. And it was just fun to get your uh, your view on the album. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as, I, as I've said before on these shows, I love talking music and, you know, hopefully people are enjoying these shows. But even if they're not, I'm enjoying making them, so... No, and, like, if, if nine people, like, that's what I'm saying. Like, I don't know if an Against Me album and some movie nobody saw <laughs> are the best way to do something like this, but I'm having a great time. We just did this whole thing. Like, I'm looking forward to the next one. Yeah, yeah, same. So I guess in uh, in two weeks, unless, you know, the NHL decides to move up the draft even further and I'm super busy, <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll bring you back on. But, uh, but Bill, thanks for, uh, thanks for coming on the show, and uh, we will see you next time with – probably Kelly Hinkle on other stuff. Thanks, everybody.